Hi, and welcome to the Church Unlimited podcast. Church Unlimited is a vibrant Bible-based church in North Lakes, Queensland that is passionate about helping people discover the genuine love of Jesus. If you're currently looking for a new home church, we'd love for you to join us for Sunday worship from 4pm at North Lakes State College on the corner of Discovery Drive and Joiner Circuit. We hope you enjoy this great message from our Sunday service and come for a visit someday soon. Okay, well, tonight, as uh, Pastor James said, this is the last uh, session that we're doing on kingdom economics, and tonight I want to share with you on the subject of uh, kingdom patterns of giving. Now, I don't like to use the word principle, and the reason is that principles are laws. It's like cause and effect. If I do that, that happens. But the Bible is full of patterns that show us the ways of God. And see, the kingdom is not, God is not, I sometimes say God's not a slot machine. It's not like if, if I do this, then God's got to do that. The kingdom operates on faith. And so he gives us patterns. And, uh, and he says, if you walk in these ways, you know, and, and by faith and, and in obedience and in willingness to walk with him, then things happen. And, and uh, you know, you can know the will of God and yet not anticipate the ways of God. And I think very often that it doesn't take us very long as Christians, as we start to read the word of God, that we see that uh, the scripture is very clear that God wants every part of your life to come under blessing and increase. Amen, somebody. Come on. There's grace and favor for every aspect of your life. And so we talk about it in terms of finance and we see that God is a provider. He wants to provide abundantly and we can see that's the will of God. But my question is that we stop to think about the ways in which God is going to bring about his will because it can be great frustration in seeing the promises and understand something of what God's will is but it's a totally different thing to understand the ways in which God is wanting to bring that about so that we can walk in the ways in order to see uh, that uh, you know the will of God completely fulfilled in our lives and um, and so tonight we're going to talk about different patterns of giving. And um, I want to begin by just touching on tithing for a few moments. You know, tithing is presented in both the Old and the New Testament uh, as foundational to our giving and the basis of financial support for the ministries of the local church. And last week, if you were here, uh, and if you weren't, why not? But if you weren't, uh, you can still get the, the podcast or the notes or whatever. But last week we touched on the fact that God introduced tithing into the law. Tithing was practiced long before the Mosaic law was given, but it was included in the law. And in uh, Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 through 23, uh, God gives us the reason. He says, uh, you know, that you bring in your whole tithe that you might learn to fear the Lord your God. So the reason he put it into the law, uh, as I said, it wasn't to establish the tithe because tithing was already practiced, but it was so that people would learn to put God first. How many know walking in the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, it's the beginning of understanding, it's the beginning of knowledge. And so he's saying, I've established this tithe so that you will learn to reverence me and put me first in your financial lives. And so it forms the basis of God's wisdom in finance. And I often say that, you know, we all operate our finance out of the fear of something. It's either the fear of God where we put him number one and do it his way, or it's the fear of the future. It's a fear of unpaid bills. It's a fear that God isn't going to provide for us, or whatever the fear may be. But in some sense, it, um, it dictates to us how we operate uh, our finance. And um, 
And when you start talking about tithing and uh, biblical interpretation, one of the laws of Bible interpretation is called the law of first reference. And what it, it means is this, that the first reference to a particular topic in Scripture contained within the context of that reference are all the essential ingredients of that truth. So, the, so if you want to look at a, a, a very succinct um, description of what tithing is all about, if we go to the first reference of tithing in Scripture, then in the context of that, the real meaning of what tithing is all about will be contained there. And the first reference is found in Genesis 14 and uh, verse 18 uh, through 20. And it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, bought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Abram is just returning from a victory over five kings, and, um, and so out of the spoils, out of the income, he gives one-tenth to this king, Melchizedek. And to get some understanding about what that picture is all about, we have to find out who is Melchizedek? Who is this guy that is so significant? He's called the priest of God, and he, he announces a blessing. He imparts a blessing to Abraham after the victory, but then Abraham pays him a tithe. And when you come through to Hebrews chapter 7, and the first three verses of that, it says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Notice this. He was without father or mother, without genealogy, Without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So, so this person, Melchizedek, he's got no family heritage. There's no lineage. He's got no natural family. He's got no identified beginning of life, no identified end of life. So he is an, an eternal being. He, is, uh, he has a priesthood that goes forever. It has no end. How many know he's not a, he's not a natural man? How I many you can see that right there? And, and it may well be that it was Jesus appearing in a pre-incarnation, uh, you know, revelation uh, to Abraham or, or whatever it was, but it, it obviously is not a normal human being. This guy, Melchizedek, has the same names as Jesus. He's an eternal priest. He's, got, he's an eternal being. He's a, he's a picture of Jesus Christ. And um, he bought the bread and the wine, just as Jesus gave us bread and wine. And to get into the, a little bit further into the real significance of this passage, you have to stop and think about who is Abraham. Because when you come to Romans chapter 4, we read about Abraham that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It says in verse 16 of Romans 4 that he is the father of all the people of faith. This is speaking in the New Testament, that Abraham is the father of all New Testament believers that have received righteousness by faith. 
How many know you and I receive righteousness by faith because we put our trust in Jesus? Come on, talk to me tonight, somebody. See, Abraham is, didn't live under the law. The law wasn't yet given. He lived under grace, the same as you and I do, and he related to God on the basis of faith. He believed what God said, and he received righteousness. Just like you and I believe what God said about Jesus, and we receive righteousness. We exchange our sinfulness and brokenness for his wholeness and righteousness. And so the very first reference in Scripture about tithing is a prophetic picture of a New Testament believer paying tithes to Jesus and doing it at the place where they celebrate the bread and wine, which is primarily uh, an ordinance of the local church. Amen, somebody. So that's the very first picture in Scripture. Then when you come across to the New Testament, uh, of course, Jesus in Matthew 23 and verse 23, he confirmed tithing when he talked uh, to the um, Pharisees on that particular occasion. But probably the most powerful a statement about tithing in the New Testament is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 13 and 14. And to uh, put this in context, in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about the support of the New Testament ministries. He's talk, he starts talking about the apostles and, that were traveling and all that sort of thing and how they should be supported. And he goes right on down through that passage. And then when he comes to verse 13 and 14, he says, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Now, there are some things here that are really important for us to understand. Because the first thing is this, that the only people that could eat the holy things that were offered in the temple were the priests and the Levites. And when it says in Malachi chapter 3 about bringing in the whole tithes, he's not talking about the whole 10%, because the children of Israel were commanded to bring in three tithes. The first tithe, 10%, was for the support of the priests and the Levites. The second tithe was for the fellowship offerings, and the third tithe, which they paid every three years, was for the care of the poor and needy. And so he was, and when he's talking about robbing God, how many know when it talks about robbing God, it's not, God doesn't need your money. So it's not talking about money, it's talking about something else. It's talking about the fact that God had previously said to Israel, when you, I'm going to bless you, and 10% of what I bless you with is my wages for the priests and Levites. So you are responsible to take my support of the priests and Levites and you become the channel for the release of that to the priests and Levites. So when he talks about robbing, it's actually robbing the priests and Levites of their income and so they were forced to go back and work on their farms and what have you to support themselves. And so the temple, if you track the history of Israel, when that was happening, the temple, the worship and all that was going on in the temple would fall into rack and ruin because there was no support for the priests and Levites. And so the first thing we have to remember is when he's talking about, when Paul is saying here about, you know, that in the temple, the priests and Levites, those who serve the house, they, they, were, they were supported out of the tithes of the people. And then it says in verse 14, even so, and if you look at the text there, if you look at the language, it means, it actually means just like that, 
in the same way as what was happening in the temple. He says, and notice what he says. He didn't say, this is my idea. He said, the Lord has commanded that that's how it should be in the New Testament. In other places, Paul would say in his writings, this is not what God is saying. This is my opinion, but God has given me wisdom. But in this particular place, he's saying quite clearly that God has commanded that what was happening in the temple should happen in the New Testament church, that the tithes should support basically the pastoral ministry. Because when it says that there might be food in my house, how many, how many know that the food is talking about spiritual food? And if the priests can't, you know, if they've got to spend all their time supporting themselves and the pastoral ministry of the church is not able to be well supported, then when you come on Sunday, you're not going to be well fed. Amen. How many know what we're talking about? See, the, the ministry falls into abeyance. And if you think about it, if the tithes were just used as they were in the Old Testament, it would mean for every 10 families we could support a full-time family in ministry if the tithes were just dedicated to what they were in the Old Testament. And that's another story for another time. But anyway, um, are you getting something out of this? It's making some sense. It's a very powerful statement. And so, uh, so let's move on from talking about tithes. And I want to talk to you about sowing and reaping uh, for a few moments. And I want to talk to you out of uh, Philippians chapter 4. And reading from verse 15, Paul is saying to the Philippian church, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. How many know that's great financial terminology right there? I have received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Amen. Jesus. Amen. Just a wonderful promise to the Philippian church. And I want you to notice that when you look at that text, he says, you know, you were the only church that shared with me in giving and receiving. In Paul's mind... If you're giving and sowing into good soil, the receiving is automatic. He's saying giving and receiving. You don't give without receiving. How many know you can't outgive God? See? And, and so he, he, he's talking about that. And, and then he, he says, uh, not that I'm looking for a gift. It's not about the gift, but I, I know that because you have given, you're going to have something credited to your account. And then, of course, he goes on and he, he comes with this, this promise in verse 19, my God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And, and, um, and you know, every promise has conditions attached to it. And, uh, and, and I, I don't know, I've been around church life a fair while, and many of you have, and I'm sure you've heard that promise bandied around. My God will meet all your needs according to Amen. How many, how many have given that to somebody to encourage them and somebody's given it to you? But see, so you've got to stop and think, on what basis was Paul able to promise that to the Philippian church? It was on the basis of missions giving. It was on the basis that they were investing into Paul's 
itinerant apostolic ministry. And he said, because you've been investing in the wider kingdom of God, then you can, and he's talking to the church as a whole. And obviously the principle applies for us as individuals, but he's talking to a church. He's saying, as a church, you invested in my missions endeavors, in my itinerant ministry and planting churches and all the stuff he was doing. And because of that, I know that God's going to meet your needs as a church. I thank God this church gives to missions. I thank God for that. See, so here's the point. Next time you're tempted to give somebody that verse as a promise, just make sure that, just tell them what the conditions are as well, will you? Just kind of go, see, it's on the basis of sowing and reaping that he gives uh, that promise to them, that something would be credited to them. So just moving on, I want to to talk to you about five laws of the harvest. The five laws of the harvest that we see in Scripture. In uh, in Genesis 8.22, I love this verse, particularly in light of what everybody's, uh, not everybody, but what some people are saying about, you know, climate change and all this sort of stuff. It says in Genesis 8.22, as long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest will never cease. So one of the things you and I need to understand is that the laws of the harvest, the sowing and reaping, seed time and harvest, are established in creation. And it ain't going to change as long as the earth remains. Come on. And, uh, and as we saw last week, you know, Jesus picks that up and, and uh, says to, the, uh, to his disciples that it's the mystery of the kingdom, understanding seed time and harvest and sowing and reaping because the whole of the kingdom of God operates on that basis. And so what I want to talk to you about uh, for the next uh, couple of hours is just... Um, we're, <laughs> We want to, just making sure you're still awake there. But I just want to, um, I, I want to talk to you about the five laws of the harvest. Actually, it's really interesting, you know, in, in the uh, second book of Timothy in chapter one, uh, Paul says to Timothy, he says to him, he said, I want you to think about a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And, and he make a little statement about each of those people. And with the farmer, he said this, the hardworking farmer is the, is the first to receive a share of the crops. And then he says this, Timothy, reflect on these people and their lives, and God will give you insight. So he's saying, Timothy, I want you to think about uh, a soldier. And he says that the soldier, the soldier going to war uh, isn't entangled with the affairs of life. See? And then he says about the athlete, uh, you know, um, endeavouring to win and, and whatever he says there. And then he says about the farmer, the hard-working farmer is the first to receive a share of the crops. He says, Timothy, I want you to think about it. So what is the significant thing about a hard-working farmer? Because he's talking about grain farmers. And a grain farmer spends all of their life working in conjunction with the laws of the harvest. That's what they do. So he's saying, Timothy, I want you to reflect about this hard-working farmer because God's going to give you some insights. And so, and so we want to talk about the laws of the harvest. The first law of the harvest is we reap what we sow. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. In creation, everything reproduces after its own kind. It's impossible to sow one kind of seed and get a different kind of harvest. You don't go and sow carrot seed in your vegetable garden and expect to dig potatoes. I hope not anyway, because it won't work. And so, so here's the thing. In this verse, there is 
quite a a strong warning. It's, It's saying, don't kid yourself. You can't make a fool of God. You will reap whatever you sow. So there's a very strong warning for us. Because if we're sowing, you know, sowing takes place in all sorts of ways. Our attitudes, the things we say, the way we behave, the way we treat people. He says, no, no, don't don't think you can get away with that. If you're sowing bad seed, you are going to get a harvest you're not going to wish you had. See, But of course, the flip side of that is whatever kind of harvest you want, sow that kind of seed. (laughs) See, sow the seed. And, and it's really interesting when you, when you, uh, you know, interact with people over a lot of years as we have. There are so many people that are wanting the harvest to come in before they sow the seed. Uh, you know, by the way they pray and the way they talk and, and their expectation is kind of like, God, when you give me something or you give me this, then I'm going to give you that. How many know you, you, you got to sow the seed? And, um, and see, see, what he's saying is this, that whatever kind of seed a harvest you want, sow that seed. Proverbs says this, if you want to have friends, you must first of all show yourself friendly. You know, there's no good coming into church and going, oh, nobody talked to me. Go talk to somebody. <laughs> Hello, you know what I'm talking about? Like, I mean, anyway, turn to somebody and say he's talking to you. So number one, rule. Number one, law of the harvest, you reap what you sow. Number two, law of the harvest, we reap after we sow. That is profound, isn't it? Luke 6 and verse 38, give and it shall be given unto you. And so, you know, you have to make the investment first. It's no good waiting on God, as we were saying again, or praying and thinking God's going to drop whatever it is on you. You have to make the investment. We reap after we sow. And, um, you know, it's like people go, want to go out to the vegetable garden and cut a lettuce for tea tonight, but they haven't planted it yet. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. You reap what you sow, you reap after you sow, and the third law of the harvest is you reap in proportion to how you sow. Second Corinthians 9 and verse 6, and in this passage, it's one of the chapters where Paul is speaking specifically about finance. He says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully or generously will also reap generously. So it's something that we're advised to remember. And uh, the harvest is always in proportion to the seed sown. It's always in proportion to the seed sown. If you sow a small patch of seed, we lived for almost five years in South Australia, and it's a grain-growing area, and and we'd moved from New Zealand there, and uh, on my dad's side, my family... The uncles of that are all farmers, you know, and you go from, um, you know, relatively small dairy farms or, or sheep farms in New Zealand to these thousands of acres of grain farms in, in South Australia. And um, you, ha- you look at them out there driving their tractors and machines day and night sowing seed, and of course the same in harvest time, and, um, and they they put in a huge amount of seed. Why? Because they want a big harvest. So um, I met some guys that that actually sow into dried up lake beds in Western Australia. So they get out, right out into the bush, and and they invest literally hundreds of thousands of dollars in sowing seed. You know, it costs a lot to run the machines and put the seed in the ground in these lake beds. But if the rain comes, the ground is so fertile that they get these enormous crops. 
But they often don't get a crop for a couple of years, but they keep putting in the seed. But they know if they get enough seed in the ground, when the rain comes, it's just nonsense, you know. You reap in proportion to what you sow. So Paul is saying, remember, don't forget it. You reap in proportion to what you sow. And then number four is you reap more than you sow. Mark 4.20, others like a seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, produce a crop 30, 60, even 100 times what was sown. The harvest is always greater than the seed sown. If that wasn't the case, how many know the farmers that eat the seed and save themselves a whole lot of work? You know, you know that the harvest is going to be greater. It's impossible to outgive God. And one of the things that's amazing when you think about it is the power, the reproductive power of a seed. If you just think of one apple seed, the reproductive power of that apple seed is an orchard of apple trees, millions of apples, zillions of apple seeds. It just goes on from one seed. Jesus said of himself, except a grain of wheat fall in the ground and die, remains alone. But if it dies, it produces great fruit. And, and when you look, he died, you know, over 2,000 years ago now. And there have been billions of people down through the centuries that have been the fruit of that seed that went into the ground. It's awesome. So, so in the context of what we're talking about tonight, you know, you, you need to treasure your seed and invest it wisely because it needs to be resurrected. And so you need to invest it into a life-giving anointing and something that's vibrant. Don't, I remember one time I was talking to the Lord about harvest. I was, I was saying, God, I reckon you owe me some harvest. Anybody ever been there? You know, I reckon I've sown a bit more seed. Up. And in the middle of this discussion and prayer that went on for a few weeks, the Lord said to me, you know, you know the parable of the sower? He said, that farmer was stupid. Interesting. And you think about it. What farmer goes out and throws seed on the road and seed in the rocks and seed in the weeds? And, and the Lord was saying to me, no, you need to sow your seed wisely and specifically so that you do get a good harvest. Because how many know if you put seed in bad soil, you don't get a good harvest? So you need to be sowing into the place that's life-giving anointing flow because your seed has to die and be resurrected in order to have a harvest. And here, here Jesus says that the, in the kingdom of God, the normal minimum is 30 times what you've sown. How many could get happy right there? Come on. Minimum, 30 times, 60 times, maybe 100 times or an optimum, the, the best possible harvest you could imagine. So, because the harvest is always greater than the seed that was sown. Number five is uh, we reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Galatians 6 and 9, let's not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. You know, the harvest always takes time uh, to grow. And depending on what it is, some things grow very quickly. Mushrooms pop up overnight, but they don't last very long. In New Zealand, we have a a cowry tree there that really doesn't mature until two or three hundred years, you know, beautiful grain in that tree, close grain and so on. And so things, so it's important that you don't become weary 
while you're waiting for that harvest and you continue to invest in the harvest. You know, if you're a timber farmer and you're growing pine trees, you're going to spend 25 years probably waiting for one harvest, for the first harvest. But in that time, you've got to continue to invest in that, in that thing and, complete, and continue to, to sow more seed out, don't you? Otherwise, you're only going to get one harvest. And here's the point. Understand that your mouth has the power of death and life. So it's no good sowing seed and then cursing your harvest by what's coming out of your mouth. You need to be watering your seed, praying for it, taking authority over anything that will come to devour it and speaking life into your harvest and calling forth uh, uh, you know, the full uh, 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 consequence of, of what you've sown and not just uh, sowing it and then moaning about what you haven't got rather than being thankful for what you have got and believing for something better. Come on. See. So I want to just quickly finish on another scripture and talk to you about two levels of good. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and uh, this is the beginning of Paul's dialogue with the Corinthian church about finance. And he says this, and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace of God. So it's a grace thing that came on the Macedonian churches. Out of, listen to this. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. How many know there's some conflicting concepts right there? You know, severe trial, extreme poverty, rich generosity. For I testify they gave as much as they were able and even beyond uh, their ability. And so he's, he's teaching the Corinthian church, but he's using the, what happened in the Macedonian church as an example. And in fact, he goes further down in that chapter and he says this to them, uh, I'm going to send the guys ahead of me to see how much you're going to give and we'll compare your love uh, for the love of the Macedonians. So it's like we took an offering you know, in the church over the other side of Brisbane this morning, and, uh, you know, they love God, and they love what's going on, and they gave this much, and now we're going to take an offering here and see if you love God as much as you love the others. How many would be happy if the pastor started teaching that? That's what Paul did to the Corinthians. Don't look at me like that. It's in the book. It's in the book. And, uh, and so he says, this about them. See that they... Uh, even in the midst of a severe trial and extreme poverty, rich generosity overflows. And he talks about their two levels of giving. The first level is they gave as much as they were able. This is giving by sight. It's a calculation. I look at, you know, there's an opportunity, miracle offerings coming around, and I'm thinking about, okay, what am I going to get? So I look at how much we've got and what's coming in and what's going out and this, that, and the other, and I do a calculation, and I go, okay, I can afford to do that. I give as much as I'm able. There's no faith in it, there's no sacrifice, and it's limited by my resources, by my known resources. But then he says this about them. They gave even beyond their ability. This is giving by faith. It's not limited by my resources as I see them. It requires that I believe God to enable me to keep functioning in life after I've given beyond my ability. And giving beyond my ability enables me to become a channel for the release of his resources to the work of the kingdom rather than being limited by my resources to the right. thing. And, um, and of course, it always giving by faith always involves sacrifice. It always stretches me. It's always uncomfortable. It takes me outside of my comfort zone. How many know what I'm talking about? We, Darry and I have found every time we get, you know, sort of comfortable at a level of giving that, that uh, somebody starts talking in our ear about lift the level. 
Come on, do a bit more, go a bit further. Why? Because God wants to increase your capacity. He wants to enlarge, you see. And, um, and so this level of giving requires that I engage my heart. I've got to start praying about it now. If I'm going to go beyond my ability, it means that I'm praying, I'm talking to God. God, what are you wanting to release through me? What should I give on this occasion? Help me, Jesus, come and speak to me and guide and direct me. The Bible says, as a man purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Nowhere in scriptures is a talk about giving from your head with a calculation. It always talks about giving from our heart. It's a heart issue. And how many know that that's, that's basic Christianity, isn't it? You know, surrendering to Jesus, being led by the Holy Spirit, and learning to live beyond our natural capacity in every area of life. Right. See, see, when we're praying for the sick, ministering, healing, how many know I'm going beyond my natural capacity? Come on, somebody. And when God always calls you to do what you can't do. He wants to stretch you. Why? Because he wants, he wants to get the glory, not you. It's not about your experience, your expertise, your education, what family you came, how much money you got. Not about any of that. It's about how amazing he is and his favor and grace has come upon you so that every area of your life functions at a higher level and you begin to walk in the ways of God. His grace, his resources flow through you to touch every area of life. And so you become a channel for the resources and the power and the presence of God to See the kingdom advance on all fronts. Come on, somebody. That's what it's about. It's awesome. And so um, I, I, love, I love this because um, once this is what I've seen over the years as we've ministered on this stuff is that when people really get a hold of what it is to see God break through in their finances, it shifts everything. It just shifts everything. And suddenly your expectations for everything else just go through the roof because, because money is so close to our hearts. Yeah. Amen, somebody. Come on. Yeah. Money is close to our hearts. Yeah. And so when you get it resolved, you see, and uh, you begin to function like that. And, and as I said a moment ago, you know, Christianity really is, is about that. That's what fundamental Christianity is. It's about committing your life to Christ and from there on being led by the Spirit and living beyond your abilities and your restrictions and your limitations and tapping into the resources of God and who God is. And Jesus, by his spirit, living inside of you, beginning to, you begin to go about life entirely differently. You have access to the wisdom of God and the ways of God and the word of God and the anointing, the gifts of the spirit. It's amazing. How many, I've often said, if you, look, if you have an honest look at Christianity and you don't commit to Christ... It's really something a bit crazy going on in your head, I think. I think you've got to be crazy. You know, it's the best, the best gig on the planet, if I can put it that way. It's unbelievable. And, and maybe tonight you're here and you've, um, you've never really encountered God in a personal way. Because when you commit your life to Christ, when, when, when the Father, as Pastor James was saying earlier, when he sent Jesus to die, the cross becomes a place of exchange for you and I. As we commit our lives to Christ, I exchange my sinfulness for his righteousness. I exchange my brokenness for his wholeness. 
I exchanged my poverty for his prosperity. All the weaknesses and, and, and inabilities and restrictions and limitations, all the stuff from the past that bogs me down, it, it's broken off my life. Come on, somebody, and you get free and you get healed and you get cleansed and you get forgiven and you're born again into the family of God and it just opens up a whole different way of life. And it's just unbelievable. And, and tonight, if you're here and maybe you've never committed your life to Jesus, maybe you're here and you once walked with him and you no longer do, or, or maybe tonight you're just not sure where you stand with God. And uh, I, I would like to pray for you tonight because, uh, you know, God loves you more than you could imagine. And, um, and he, he wants to encapsulate your life in his love and his grace and his mercy he wants to wrap it in that so that you can live on this planet the best life imaginable the best life you ever could thanks for listening we hope you've enjoyed this message we pray that you and your family are richly blessed in the love and grace of jesus if you're ever in the area we'd love to have you join us for sunday worship